At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world of fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. Now to John chapter 1, so if you haven't turned there yet, I want to invite you to find John 1 with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one below the seat in front of you, or maybe you're joining us online, you have a device near you, follow along that way, but I'd love for you to have the text so you can see what we're going to be, uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but I'm going to read our verses John, in John 1, and then uh, pray for us, and then we'll study them together. So John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he, uh, was he of who I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful this morning for the truth that we just read, that even though no one has seen you, Jesus has made you known. We're thankful also for your word, which reveals who you are to us, and reveals what you have done. And as we turn our attention to it now, God, I pray that what you would do is you would come and draw us more deeply into your truth and your reality. What John proclaims here is deep, at times mysterious, and yet so vitally necessary for our understanding of the world, of you, of ourselves, of our lives, so would you not leave us in the shallows this morning, God, but instead would you take us into the depth and deep places of who you are? Reveal more of yourself. Open our eyes and our ears to see things we might not normally comprehend apart from your spirit. So spirit, would you illuminate the truth of God's word to us this morning? And would you help us to be receptive not only receiving it in faith, but also being transformed by it. So Lord, would you glorify your son through the power of your spirit, by the preaching of your word, we ask. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So I'm going to show a little bit of my age this morning, but... Um, Growing up, there was a song that uh, has always kind of stuck with me for many years. I remember, actually, I have a distinct memory of being at a, uh, a young adolescent at an ice skating rink and hearing this song 
and it kind of stood out to me. The song was called One of Us. It's by an artist named Joan Osborne. It was released in 1995, uh, and that year it was the number four song on the Billboard charts and is considered one of the top 100 songs of the 1990s. And part of the reason um, it, it's kind of stuck with me is not only kind of the melody, it's catchy, but also the chorus kind of asks a provocative question. The artist sings in that song, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home? Now you have that song stuck in your head for the rest of the day. You can thank me later. But it's kind of been one of those enduring songs. It asks a really interesting question. Songwriter Eric Brazilian, who actually wrote the song, said that the question of the song is what you do when you experience something that totally changes your view of the world. To encounter God and a stranger on a bus would totally shift the entire way you think about reality, the way you think about yourself and your life. What, what if God was really one of us? Well, thousands of years before Joan Osborne's provocative chorus, a Jewish prophet named Isaiah proclaimed that there actually would be a time where we would encounter the answer to Joan's question. He had written, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel simply means God with us. And the earliest Christians ascribed this prophecy to the birth of Jesus. In fact, Matthew, one of Jesus's earliest disciples, when he records the account of Jesus's birth, directly quotes from Isaiah, announcing that God is with us. It was their conviction and the conviction of Christians across the ages that in Jesus, God was with us. And that the way he was with us was that he had become one of us. To encounter Jesus is to encounter God. And that really does change the entire way we think about reality and life and our lives and God and everything. But what really does it mean that God is with us in the person of Jesus? Today we're launching our Christmas series called Emmanuel, God with us. Where this year as we celebrate the arrival of Jesus for the next several weeks... We're going to dig into what the scripture has to say about the truth that God became one of us in Jesus and that he is with us. And we're going to see through this series how that truth really does change everything. And we're going to begin this morning in the gospel of John. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. If you could see God, like actually see him, what do you imagine you would encounter? If you could see God. Now, as soon as we ask that question, we face a couple of challenges. Because the scriptures tell us that God is invisible. In fact, John references later that God is spirit. And directly, Paul would say that God is the invisible God. That because he is spirit, he's not physically visible to us. So how do you see someone or envision someone who's invisible? Second, the scriptures tell us that God is holy. Holy means he's set apart, meaning he's completely other, completely distinct from everything else in creation. There is nothing and no one like him or that can even be compared to him. So how do you imagine 
a being that is both invisible and not like anything you ever have known or will know. Beyond that, the scriptures tell us that God is really intense. The manifestation of God's holiness in the Bible is called his glory. One writer says that his glory is the going public of his holiness. Now, in one sense, we see part of God's glory revealed in creation, but when we, what we see throughout the scriptures is that when people encounter God in the reality of his glory, in the fullness of his glory, it's so intense, they actually can't even do it. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God came to him and said, my glory is so intense that I'm actually only just going to show you my back, because if you saw the fullness of who I was, you would be consumed. When God's glory came down and filled the tabernacle among his people in Israel, it was so intense they couldn't even approach the tent because it was so strong. When Isaiah saw God's glory in his throne and he encountered it, he fell down and said, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. When the shepherds encounter God's glory through the angels, when they announce his message, it says in Luke that they were filled with fear. So the going public of God's holiness is so intense, people can't even stand it. It's, it's kind of like the sun. In one sense, we understand the glory of the sun by the light that it brings, but to actually stare at the sun is virtually impossible. God's glory is the same. We see his glory in what he has made, but to stare directly at it is virtually impossible. So when you ask the question, if you could see God, what do you imagine that you would see? Well, when you look through scripture, what you suddenly realize is that's a pretty unique challenge. How do you see a God who's invisible, who's not like anything you've ever known or will known, and whose glory is so intense that it's virtually impossible to behold? How can you actually see the glory of God? Well, in John, he answers that question. In fact, he makes a really startling claim right towards the end of the introduction of his gospel. John was one of the early followers of Jesus. He wrote a gospel to give an accord or an account of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. And at the beginning of his gospel, the first 18 verses, he spends setting up an introduction for what he is about to write. And at the end of that section, he makes a really interesting note. He says this in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. John affirms our dilemma that no one has in fact seen God, but then he goes on to say, he, in reference to Jesus, has made him known. For John, how we can actually see the glory of God is we see it ultimately in Jesus Christ. But how can John say this? How does Jesus actually help us to see God and to see his glory? Well, the reason John can say this is that through his intro, he's been inviting us to actually look and see Jesus for who he is and for what he's done in order to see how he reveals and brings to us the reality of who God is and helps us to see God in his glory. And this morning, we're just going to look at a few verses in John's intro that I think invite us to behold two things about Jesus that will help us see the reality of who God is and his glory. The first thing that John invites us to behold is to behold the person of Jesus. 
Go back a few verses with me to John or to verse 14 in John 1. This is what John writes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that is one of the most startling statements in the history of the entire world. And I am not overstating that. What John just recorded is indeed mind-blowing, mysterious, and affects our entire understanding of reality. But in order to understand a little bit of why it's so mind-blowing, you need to understand a little bit of where John started in the intro and why he says what he says here. So jump back with me to verse 1 and see how he begins. John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. And if that sounds familiar, it's meant to, because it's actually alluding to another book that starts with those same words, the book of Genesis. And Genesis begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis begins by giving us an account of how God created everything that is, from the furthest galaxies to the reality of the world to you or to human beings themselves. And John wants to allude back to that because what he wants to remind you of is that what ultimately God was God's agent in bringing creation was God's word. When God created, God spoke, and it was his word that made everything that is made. That's why John says, in the beginning was the word the agent of God's creation. But then he makes two interesting notes about God's word. He says that the word was with God and that the word was God. Now, by saying that the word was with God, John is noting that God and his word are distinct but eternally related. So they're not exactly the same thing, But by noting that the word was God, he's noting that they're of the same divine essence. And if you're like, how does that work? Welcome to the mystery of the Trinity. What John lays here and lays the groundwork for will help Christians in their understanding of God and what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. What we see throughout scripture is that God reveals himself as one God, but three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct persons, but one God of the same divine essence. They're in eternal relationship with one another, but yet they are one God. What Christians have professed for thousands of years is that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Three distinct persons, yet one God. And John says that here. What John refers to as the Word, Scripture also refers to as the Son of God. And John says that the Word, or the Son, was with God, and he was God. And if you are confused, that's how it's meant to be. We're talking about God. If you understood him completely, you would be him. 
That's why John Wesley famously noted, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and I will bring you a man who can comprehend the triune God. His nature is mysterious, yet he gives us glimpses. But I only bring that up to help you understand. When John is talking about the word, he's talking about the second person of the Trinity and God himself. And so now, with that in mind, jump to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what John is saying is that the eternal word of God, the one by whom all things were made, who has existed in eternal relationship with the Father from all of eternity, became a human being. This verse is often referred to as the incarnation. Maybe you've heard that term before. The incarnation just comes from the Latin meaning in the flesh. And that's what John is proclaiming. That in Jesus, the word became flesh. And as he does that, he wants you to behold three things in the text about Jesus. To see him for who he is. The first thing that he wants you to see is that in Jesus, God became fully human, right? The word became flesh, or the God word has now become the God man. That idea of becoming flesh is meant to stand in contrast to God as spirit. We understand God as spirit, the invisible God. But here, John is emphasizing that in Jesus, God has also brought to himself humanity, such that God is now both spirit and flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes by his language here the fullness of Jesus' humanity. He's meant to emphasize the paradox that God could be both fully God and fully man in Jesus. Again, mysterious in nature, but John wants you to see that it's true in Jesus. That's why one, tra- one commentator on this says that the translation became is important because it refers to the actual nature of the word. The word has not changed. He is God, but the word does now exist in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. And in Jesus, God becomes a full human being. The second thing is, in Jesus, God dwelt with humanity fully. That's why it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But when he uses that phrase, dwelt among us, he's making a very specific allusion. Another way that you could translate that idea of what we translate as dwelt is that the word pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent amongst us. It's actually a very direct reference to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the place where God dwelt among his people, among the nation of Israel, was in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was at the center of the Jewish community and of Jewish worship. It was God's dwelling place. But what John wants you to see is that the tabernacle was temporary, but now in Jesus, God has come to dwell fully and finally in him. That the word becoming flesh is God's primary place in which he now dwells among humanity. And so God not only is flesh in Jesus, but he is the dwelling place of God among us. Finally, he wants you to see that in Jesus, God reveals his glory. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jewish readers of John's gospel would have immediately connected the tabernacle with the visible manifestation of God's glory, what was often referred to as the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of it. And there's various images given in the Old Testament. But what John wants you to see is that in seeing Jesus, you have seen the visible manifestation of the glory of God fully revealed. It's a unique glory, a glory that only exists between the Father and the Son, referencing their eternal relation with each other. But it is a revealed glory that in in Jesus, that unique glory of God is now visibly manifest here for us to see. Not only that, he says it's a glory of grace and truth. These are two terms directly taken from Exodus 34 where God reveals the nature of his character, that he's slow to anger, and it says he's abounding in chesed and amet, steadfast love and faithfulness. Translate those Hebrew words to Greek and translate those Greek words to English, and you get the terms grace and truth. This is covenantal language, that God's glory is not only revealed in the unique reality of the Son with the Father, but it is a unique glory revealing his grace and truth or his steadfast love and his faithfulness to his people. The word become flesh is the ultimate revelation of God's glory. And it is, as I heard it stated, the ultimate expression and source of God's covenantal faithfulness. So consider what John, in one sentence is inviting you to behold when you look at Jesus. That in Jesus, the invisible, holy, heavenly, and severely intense God in all of his glory is now visible, earthly, fleshly, approachable, and full of covenantal love and faithfulness. What Paul, or I'm sorry, what John wants you to see is that in Jesus, you don't have to imagine God. You get to see him in the most improbable way possible as a human being. I've loved for a long time uh, architecture. I love fascinating architecture, and I love being able to travel and see various pieces of architecture around the world, and by God's grace, have had the blessing to do that in a number of places. And one of the things about some architecture is that it's so massive and magnificent in its scope that it's almost impossible to comprehend just by yourself with your naked eye. If, if you've ever been to places like the Empire State Building, or even, or even if you've just gone to some like massive sports stadium, Right? So there's some things that are so, it's almost hard to comprehend all the intricacies and elements and pieces that go into making certain architecture so magnificent. But one of the things that can help us comprehend the scope and scale of something so massive and so crazy is when people build replicas. Right? Replicas, a good replica, is meant to be a, a miniaturized, a more approachable version of something that might be too hard to comprehend in scope in its originality. 
right? In a good replica, you can see the intricacies of how a building might be built. You can see different columns and pieces and how things fit together. It gives you an approachable way to see and understand something that might be beyond your comprehension normally. What John wants you to understand is that in Jesus, the God who is too magnificent for you to comprehend, who's unapproachable, the Bible says he dwells in unapproachable light, has actually come and manifested himself in such a way that you can begin to understand who God is. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. That when you see him, You're seeing God in the flesh, dwelling among you in his glory so that you might have a way to understand and approach a God who you wouldn't be able to otherwise. And so John invites you to behold the person of Jesus as a way of seeing the glory of God. How do you behold the person of Jesus? Well, remember, this is John's introduction He's setting you up. He wants you to understand who Jesus is. So as you read through the rest of his gospel, you have this in the back of of your mind that Jesus is God. So you can see how does God act in the miracles that he does? What does God do as he moves towards the cross? How does God reveal himself in the person and character of Jesus? This is the setup which is meant to help you behold who Jesus is as John recounts the reality of his life, death, and resurrection. So one of the simple ways that you can behold Jesus is just to read the gospel. And I would include the other gospels in there. They're accounts of a real human being who really lived historically, who really did the things that they recount, and they bear witness as eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ, the full human being who was also fully God. And they're written so you can behold him and see him and know who he is. So maybe this Christmas season, it's a good time to go back and spend some time just reading the Gospels and beholding Jesus. But John doesn't want you to only behold the person of Jesus. He also wants you to behold the work of Jesus in order to understand how we can see the glory of God. In verse 15, he adds this parentheses that he gives about John the baptizer, which he uses multiple times throughout the introduction. But in verse 16, he comes back to reminding us and inviting us to see Jesus again. He says this, And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So notice the shift that John makes here. He invites you to see the fullness of Jesus and who he is. But now he shifts that from that fullness, he has done something for us. We have received something from him. And so he wants to not only for you to behold the person of Jesus, but also the work of Jesus. That fullness is his, the fullness of his grace and truth. But from that, we have received, and John uses the phrase, grace upon grace. Now, that can be a unique phrase. What does he mean by that? Well, he he actually gives us his explanation in verse 17 when he says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Through Moses, God had given the law, and the law was the revelation of God so that people could live in covenantal relationship to him. 
It was a both a way to know God, but also to be in relationship with God. But what John are saying here is that Jesus has now brought that fully and finally to all who would receive him, what he references in verse 12. Remember, Moses brought the law, but Jesus brought grace and truth. Those are covenantal terms. It's not that Jesus didn't replace the law. Jesus didn't replace the law. He fulfilled the law. And in fulfilling the law, he brought a new covenant, a new way not only to know God and who he is, but to be in relationship with him. And so what the language that he uses here is to help you see that in Jesus, when you come to know Jesus, you come to be with God. You don't only get to see him, you get to know him and know him in relationship. You get to be with him. That's why John, just a couple chapters later, would remind us what Jesus has done for us in his work when he would write one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What John reminds us of is that the work of Jesus was the work of salvation. It was bringing us from our place of separation from God and making a way to be back in relationship with him, in covenantal relationship. Our sin had separated us, but by the work of, jo of God who comes and sends Jesus to die in our behalf, we can be rescued and redeemed back into relationship. To see the work of Jesus is to know the love of God. And to put your faith in him is to receive his grace upon grace. It's to receive his covenantal love. When you see the work of God, you see his love for you. If you wanted to behold my love for my wife, what would you look to? Well, you wouldn't look to who I am, that might not tell you much. Like, all right, well, you're Jacob, great. I don't know, does that mean you love your wife or don't? And you wouldn't necessarily look to the fact that I'm her husband, because we definitely know just being someone's spouse doesn't equate directly to love. So what would you actually look at? You would look at my actions. What I do would display for you and allow you to see my love for my wife. And you could judge whether or not I loved her by my actions toward her. So what I do reveals the reality of my love. And to behold my action is to behold my love. It's the same with God. How do you know God loves you? Is it because he's God? Well, that doesn't necessarily help me. Is it because he made us? Maybe partially. But it's actually in the work of Jesus Christ that we come to see it's in his actions, both in his life and his death, that we see most fully God's love for us. That's why Paul would write to the Roman church and he would say, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning Christ died for you before you were even lovely. That's how much God loves you. 
And when you look to the cross, what you see most fully displayed in the work of Jesus is God's love. And John wants to invite you to behold that. Behold that out of his fullness, because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, if you put your faith in him, you have received grace upon grace. You have received covenantal, faithful, eternal love. The sort of love that your heart longs for, that when it's found, completely shifts your entire reality, that provides a satisfaction you will never find in any other aspect of life. That in Jesus, God loves you. You, right where you are, in your seat, right now, with all your mess, God loves you because Jesus died for you. His actions show his love, and John wants you to behold his work. How do you receive that love? Well, he says it, whoever believes in him. If you have put your faith in Jesus, God loves you right now, right where you're at, period, If you have not put your faith in Jesus, he invites you to put your faith in him so you can know that love, so you can enter into that relationship with him. And we would invite you to do that today because to believe in Jesus is to receive eternal life. Now, I think oftentimes we misunderstand that phrase because in our modern kind of American understanding, when we think eternal life, we just think going to heaven when I die. That's what Jesus is all about. If I just believe in Jesus, that means I don't go to hell and I get to go to heaven. That's not what John means by that phrase. An equally valid and I think helpful translation is to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will have the life of eternity. That you will have the life that God intended for you to live eternally. God had designed us and created us for a life with him, in relationship with him forever, a life of flourishing and justice and righteousness and goodness for us and for all of creation. Our sin broke that, and so we feel that effects and its fallenness. But the truth of the gospel is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we're restored in relationship. And that life of eternity that we were designed for, we begin to receive now. We'll receive the fullness of its aspect when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. That's why I love the season of Advent, because it reminds us that Jesus came once, but he's also coming again to fully, finally establish his kingdom for all eternity. But the truth is that life That life where God remakes the world, where perfect justice and harmony and righteousness reign forever and ever, where there's no more death, where no more tears, no more sin, that you can begin to experience that life of eternity right now when you put your faith in Jesus. A life marked by the very covenantal love of God. And all you have to do is believe in him. And so John invites you. Behold who Jesus is and behold what he has done. And then he comes back to where we started in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So I come back to the question I asked you at the beginning. If you could see God, what do you imagine you would encounter? I can tell you what you would encounter you would encounter Jesus. That's what you would encounter. You don't have to imagine it. When you see Jesus, you see God. 
when you see what Jesus does, you see what God does. To behold the person and work of Jesus Christ is to behold God himself in all his glory, in all the fullness and reality of who he is. And so what John invites you to, both at the beginning of his gospel and throughout, is see Jesus. Because in seeing Jesus, you see the glory of God. You see the revelation of who he is in his fullness in Jesus Christ. This is the invitation of Christmas. The reminder of this season is not presents and packages tied up with string. The invitation of this season is to behold God in his fullness revealed in a human being for the salvation of the world. And you can see that as you see him revealed in his word. And you see the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's a great line in the children's Christmas classic, The Polar Express, both in the movie and the book, where it says, seeing is believing, but sometimes the most real things in the world are things we can't see. And there's a truth there. There is. But I think the reminder of what John wants us to say is that when it comes to Jesus, you can see and believe. You can behold God in a way you never thought you would be able to, so that you might have faith in him, receive his salvation, and know his covenantal love for eternity. You can see God and believe. And so the question is, will you behold him this Christmas season? Will you look to Jesus and in seeing, believe that you might have the life of eternity. I pray that you would. In fact, let me pray for us right now. God, we stand amazed, amazed in this moment of the truth that your word proclaims. That the eternal word who is before all of creation and by whom all things were made, who has eternally existed with you forever, would put on flesh, would become a human being like me? Man, my brain can't even begin to comprehend it. And yet my heart resounds with praise for its truth. So we in this moment just stand for a second in awe of who you are, Jesus. Fully God, fully man, Lord of all, and Savior of the world. And we come now to respond to your word by just giving you praise, by both celebrating your incarnation, but also just praising you for the God that you are, standing amazed and in awe of your power and your majesty, of your worth and your might, of your glory, and yet also blessing you for what you've done in offering us salvation by dying on our behalf. So we come to give you praise right now, Jesus. I pray your Holy Spirit would just come in this moment, in this place, to those gathered, and that you would freshly reveal your glory to us you would fill our imaginations and our hearts full of the truth of who you are and what you've done so that we can be overwhelmed with your glory and respond with authentic praise 
So would you do that now by your spirit for us? And may you hear the praise of your people for all that you are and all that you've done. We love you. We stand in awe of you. And it's in your mighty and holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.